0: Get down with DND you Get down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with DND down with DND Down you down with D I'm down with D and yeah, you know down with D?
1: Are you ready to get down with some D and I know I am, and I am joined, as I am always joined, by the memorable, modern, and merry Mad Wizard Merwin. What is up, Sean?
0: Hey, Chris. You know it's afternoon here, but I've just I've got this whiff of morning air, and I'm not sure what's going on. Is is someone here that's still in the morning time?
1: I don't know. Are they? Are they? Is this? Oh, uh, James? James Hake? James Hake? Wow! You have just materialized out of nowhere, out of mist. In fact, how are you it's, doing?
2: It's me. I'm here from the Pacific Time Zone, where it's still, where uh, we're still clinging to morning by a thread. Mm. Nice. James, uh, welcome to Down with DnD. It's the first time we've had you on. We're we're so happy to have you here. Yeah, it's great to be here. It's great to hear from Sean again. Great to meet you, Chris. Uh, wonderful to meet you,
1: actually. In fact, ah, uh, like like I, we were just talking about before, um, I uh, I got to run your Adventures League adventure at Winter Fantasy three times, and it has a a a Baelor in it, a pit fiend. It's a uh, pretty great. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and um, well, I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit in the in, in the future. But you also have some other things going on. Um, but before we get to you, if you don't mind, we have some this this news thing that we like to do. So if if you don't mind, we'll just get into that.
2: I am very patient.
1: Talk as much as you wish. I appreciate that, Sean. What are we talking about today? Oh, wait a minute. First thing first.
0: Um, yeah, you need to talk first, Chris.
1: So, uh, for those people who are wondering what's been happening lately, we had a catastrophic website malfunction, and um, all of our posts got wiped out from a from a corrupt file system and structure. Uh, the website's back though, and it's it's new and improved, and it looks pretty and everything like that. Uh, thank you, Senda, my partner in in podcasting. She uh, she did a wonderful job helping me put all that back together, and everybody else has been pitching in to to do their part to get all the posts and all the podcasts back up all something like a thousand of them so it'll take a little while but we'll get there eventually <laughs> um if you're listening to this you've managed to find the show again which is good because all the feeds are different so Thank you for finding us. But if you could do us a favor, there are some posts floating around out, out there around the interwebs that have the RSS feeds for all the shows, including down with d and If you could share those posts around the various social medias that you're a part of, we would greatly appreciate that. Um, you'll see them. They'll be on Twitter, on Google Plus, on the Facebooks in those places. So thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Sean, what's up? <laughs>
0: Now it's time for some news, uh, although that's pretty big news right there. So the first bit of news is there was an Unearthed Arcana article put up on the Wizards website called Into the Wild, and it dealt with the part of the game where that often doesn't get a lot of love, which is the exploration part, especially in a, in a wilderness setting. Because uh, it, my experience is most players like combat. Uh, some get into the role playing and that's growing more and more, uh, especially with the streaming that we're seeing, but something that often doesn't get the love it deserves is the exploration part, especially in wilderness because exploring dungeons can be cool. You know, traps go off things, things happen. Um, So that's why this article was intriguing to me. Mike Merles writes about how a DM can make exploration fun, you know, a little bit more memorable. Uh, and so I just wanted to throw that out there uh, so for, for people to, to look at if they haven't seen it yet. Uh, it covers wilderness travel. It often refers back to Chapter 5 in the Dungeon Master's Guide and Chapter 8 from the Player's Handbook, which discusses this, uh, this concept in general. The concept that Mike, Mike brings out in this article is to travel in the wilderness, you can divide it up into different phases. The first phase is choosing a destination. Based on what destination the players choose, you can set up a DC for them to navigate to that point. And the DC could be zero if it's something that's just along the road, or it could be something as high as 30 if it's a mysterious tower shrouded by magic. So once you've got this destination, then people can choose what activities they are going to do during this exploration. Um, Some of the things that are discussed in the Player's Handbook in the Dungeon Master's Guide are marching order, stealth, noticing threats, navigating, drawing a map, tracking, foraging, and so on. Uh, This article really deals with that uh, navigation part. So one person will have to navigate, and then the other people can choose the secondary activities, which could greatly influence how the day goes for the group as they travel. Uh, the third step is resolving those activities in the travel. And then the fourth step is camping if you don't arrive at your destination before the end of the day. And he gives an example from something from his home game, which he calls the Moon Hills Exploration. So he give, he shows in this document some of the DCs for traveling to these various locations, uh, special uh, DCs for specific locations within the Moon Hills, He gives you a chart that shows some special effects that might take place after a long rest since this area is being affected by a planar bridge. And what that does is it gives consequences for groups that fail to explore well or get lost and then don't get to their uh, destination in time. And he also sets up some special terrain features that you can use if you run encounters uh, during this exploration. So in all, it's just a a look at exploration as something that can be propped up a little more in your D&D game. Um, I'd be interested in hearing, James or Chris, how is exploration handled in games that you've run over the years? Is it just kind of the redheaded stepchild that gets a nod, or is it something that you actually do take time on? Go ahead, James. Oh,
2: you just you just sent me to the UA article because I didn't read this one and I'm totally lost in it. This is a beautiful article. Um, I love exploration in theory. And I think all of my games up to this point have tried to make it work, but I never really knew what I was doing. (laughs) Um, So it, it eventually ended up being me just hand waving it and people traveled. And Mm -hmm. I ran princes of the apocalypse as my first full fifth edition campaign. And I was pretty dead set on using that hex crawl uh, aspect of it. Um, And I quickly found that unless every hex on your map has at least something on it, your hex crawl isn't going to be very fun. And uh, there are a lot of empty hexes in the Princes of the Apocalypse map, Uh, which doesn't mean it's bad. It just means my expectations uh, were not not met by the product that I was actually using. And that was, you know, that was a pretty simple uh, expedition method, right? They just mapped out uh, the hexes on the map like they were squares on a game board. And if there was something there, then they hit an encounter. And if not, I rolled a die for random encounters. And that fell into that old cliche of, well, of course, there will never be more than one random encounter on any one journey, because that's why that's just boring. They want to get to the actual plot of this story, not fight three orcs on the road. And, uh, my group is a a pretty story oriented group. One random encounter of most just to keep things interesting, but they want to get to the next interesting, uh, part of the game. Um, so seeing an article like this, that actually has a ton of effects and lore and story built into the simple act of exploration really gets my brain moving. I think I need a, hour or so just to digest this article now
0: yeah mm-hmm. I, i've always had the same uh the same experience you have uh in the sense that the my players say "Ooh, hex crawl that sounds great but there was never really enough to it to either make it interesting a story-wise or b game-wise mm-hmm. how about you chris
1: so it okay so there are a, a variety of kinds of games that one can run um so the hex mac the hex crawl is one of them right so that is you know you go hex to hex i feel like that always works best like i think this article is pretty great for this but i always think that works best when you have a um a random encounter table that maybe you don't hit every time but it feeds into what's going on with whatever the story is that's that you're that is that is being presented right so like it's that uh it's it's like the old random encounter gen thing that happened in uh, old school D&D because it's like you know you would you would go into the dungeon and you roll a d6 every so often to see how uh see if you run into something but that is because bad stuff could happen to you as a push your luck mechanic um out in the wilderness it's not about that to me it's more about enhancing the story that is being told so like if you're going to have those random encounters that, and that stuff that stuff should flavor what is going on around you so it has to be very kind of specific to uh to the, the travel that's going on. Like, uh, that's for the hex crawl, um, for journey rules. Like I love adventures in middle earth. Their journey rules are so good. So, I mean, like anybody who's playing D if you don't, if you haven't seen that stuff yet, go check it out. It's very good about flavoring a journey. That's almost cinematic. Like you see in like the Lord of the Rings. So take a look at those rules. Um, this, this stuff is great that he's got going on here with the DCs and the, and the, the, the lore and whatnot. Um, what this article could use, I think, is um it's got some of it's got some of it. I mean, it's actually all really kind of right there. It's sort of like a point crawl in a lot of ways, um, where it's got these different locations that you can travel to and then things that can happen in between them that are flavored to the different locations that you can travel to. So it, it's it's essentially a point crawl without being a point crawl, which for those people who don't know what a point crawl is, it's basically you basically make a web map or a mind map with all the different locations. And then you draw lines between them. That's kind of the ways that you get to them. And when people are traveling those lines, that's when you make your random, your random checks and your things like that to see what happens in the in-between and stuff like this moon Hills region are great for flavoring that, which makes it feel makes the area feel alive and gives it some flavor to it and some story like James said. So like those are three very different examples of how you can sort of manage your, your exploration. That's why that's where I think this one fits really well he's going for that, that point crawl feel because that is often the kind of game that most of us want to play where there might be just an encounter or two that flavors what is going on with the story that's being presented.
0: And I think that's, I think you hit the nail on the head there in that it offers just enough um, concrete details to flavor the region and then flavor the story that you're you're telling within the region uh so we'll see if this uh if in later iterations of the rules that we see this comes to the fore but i'd love to hear what our listeners have to say you could uh talk to us on our down our down with Dg plus community and let, let us know what you think oh yes
1: so uh, i heard there's a project manager job open at at, at wizards of the coast
0: they're hiring like crazy First, it's first it's you know a D and D writer, developer, designer job, uh, which was just filled recently, and now they have a and D project manager job, and so we have a link uh, in our show notes. You also can find it if you follow Mike Merles. This is the exact quote: "We have another job opening on the D and D team. I'm hiring a project manager to keep the wheels of the D and D team rolling. Details here." And then he gives a link to the site. So if you are into D and D and project management, uh, and you're willing to move to Renton, Washington, uh, go check it out.
1: And our third bit of news uh, is D&D Beyond is to publish game content, and that is one of the reasons, in fact, the primary reason, why we have uh, our guest here today. So uh, Todd Kenrick, hosting content director for D&D Beyond on Twitter, he said he's excited to announce that starting March 5th, they'll be bringing original articles about Dungeons & Dragons from the likes of James Intercaso, Mike Shea, the Sly Flourish, and James Hake. James, what else can you tell us about this?
2: Ah, mm-hmm. there is a lot to say and a lot not to say right now. Um, I can tell you right now that we are starting on March 5th uh, with an article by me. And for this first article, I interviewed a friend of the show. I won't I won't tell you who. You'll have to read the article to find out. But <laughs> someone that both Sean and I have podcasted with together at some point. Um, and this article details uh, a bit of the controversy and some solutions to the perceived problems with the Beastmaster Ranger. (laughs) Sean knows who I interviewed. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I I, I had a suspicion, and then you just said that, so I'm like, okay, Yeah,
2: obvious. Obvious if you know this fellow. Um, (laughs) But I wanted to start off uh, strong on D&D Beyond with something that tackled issues that uh, the community is interested in, and that also can be of, of use of uh, immediate use to a dungeon master and their players at the table, because if there is a potential mechanical problem or in, in the case of this article, I argue um, an expectations problem and maybe a rules understanding problem, um, the players in the dungeon master all have to know uh, how, how to work within that framework. Um I, I won't tell you too much about what goes on in there because I want you to read the thing when it gets published but um i I come to the conclusion ultimately that the Beastmaster is not broken in the sense of its mechanics not working, but it is uh so gravely misunderstood in terms of how to play it and in terms of uh how to have fun with it that uh, people have some people have some problems based on that um beyond that very first article in D&D Beyond. I have some very cool, uh, how should I describe this? Um, I don't want to give the impression that D&D Beyond is the new uh, way to get homebrew D&D material that's been created by freelancers. Um, Certainly, there will be some interesting uh, crunchy bits in there. I think there are if if that Beastmaster article is well received. I think there are some uh, there are some mechanical tweaks we could make to it and maybe publish a homebrew unofficial alternate thing. But for the very reason that D and D Beyond is not an official Wizards of the Coast source, um, mm-hmm. we don't want to muddy the waters too much on publishing basically our own unearthed Arcana over there. We'll we'll do it every now and then, but we have to make very clear that D and D beyond is D and D beyond. We host content there. Uh, many of it is official. Some of it is homebrew from our community forums, but, uh, if you try and take anything that you see on our blog to the Adventurers League, for instance, or anything from the homebrew section, to a place where rules are very strict and official uh, you will not be able to use it there.
0: Cool. Yeah. As, as soon as D and D beyond started coming out with the videos that we see um, talking with the, the design team from wizards, I was, I was curious if they would take this next step and kind of turn into a content developer as well. And it seems like what you're describing is the first steps in that direction, not going full you know, not going full Dragon Magazine, basically, mm-hmm. but uh but just putting out information that could be of interest to to players of D&D everywhere.
2: Yeah. in Adam Bradford's uh, announcement live stream, when he told everyone, he told the world about this new content plan, he called it Project Rolling Stone. And I thought that was very funny because I'd never <laughs> heard that name before he said it. <laughs> but um He fully intends for this to be the Rolling Stone or the Kotaku or the polygon of D&D. There's going to be a website revamp. It's going to be much more conducive to actually reading uh, articles, to finding articles and looking for uh, written and video content in the archives. And it's going to be a source of not just D&D columns, though certainly we'll have a lot of those uh, from both myself and from James Intercasso, Mike Shea, and any other guest writers we decide to pull into the fold. Um, but it's also going to be a source of D&D news. We already have a direct link to the game designers and uh, other folks over Wizards of the Coast, and now we have a direct link to some of the freelancers who work on the game. D&D news is not happening daily, of course, which is why we have such a robust uh, set of articles coming out. I mean, you'll basically see a new piece of written content from D&D Beyond every day of the week, uh, Mm. or pretty close to it. We've got a lot of stuff down uh, in the pipeline right now. Um, But when D&D News comes out, when we hear more information about those secret projects, Broadway and Catacomb, that we've heard teased on uh, you know, Amazon and stuff where the codenamed projects are already showing yes. up, uh, you can bet your bottom dollar that we're going to have all sorts of information about what is actually behind those codenames. And, and of course, uh, when Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes is available to the public, uh, I'm sure Todd and the rest of us will have all sorts of uh, in-depth analyses and uh, little hidden gems that you might have missed within the pages mm. of that book.
1: Oh that's cool. I love when people do things like that like when they they break down books and be like you might want to look at these things cuz they're really really clever. Yeah. There's a lot of that stuff in um Xanathar's and Volo's guide that are uh, people might not be thinking about like the uh the common magic items which are pretty great in the, I Xanathar's. Love those. Um Cool. Like that's awesome. Thank you for that insight. I can't wait to see everything that comes out from D&D Beyond. That's that's very exciting stuff. I like the that analogy that they're going to be the rolling stone or the uh Kotaku
2: of yeah. of D&D. D&D has been without uh something like that for for quite some time. Um it it's hard to find something that's so uh intimately dedicated simply to Dungeons and Dragons uh and not the RPG industry as a whole.
1: Mhm. Absolutely. Um all right, let's let's move on. Let's talk about creating D&D content for public consumption. So like we talk about we talk about D&D, about everything about D&D. We talk about the brand, we talk about the game, we talk about design, we talk about publishing um and we talk about D&D products. Uh, and we'd like to talk about how to create them. But before we do that, James, like what's your background in gaming or life that led you
2: to game design? Um let's start from the beginning. Uh, I first started playing D&D kind of kind of late in my life, I guess, compared to some other people, I started playing in high school. I keep hearing of all of these stories of D&D players who played since they were eight and found their red box in their parents' attic. And no, I, I just started in high school when one of my friends brought a third edition book to school and was like, oh, I'll play this game that I've only heard of on cartoons. And I basically immediately fell into a dungeon master role because I had a story I wanted to tell. And I'm I'm sure every first time dungeon master can tell you that their first campaign was uh railroady as it could possibly be if they had a story to tell and they didn't just throw you into a into a blank hex map. Um but o- over the years I I decided that <laughs> no, sorry. Uh, actually, what happened is I, I went to college after that, and all of my friends who I used to play D&D with were uh, three states away, so <laughs> I couldn't play with them anymore, and I had to find a new group, and uh, my efforts to find a new group were were stymied very often. Uh, I could not find anyone in the heart of Southern California, in Orange County, of all places, uh, to, find, to play D&D with. And so I basically turned all of my wanting-to-play-D&D energy into writing adventures like those that I'd seen in the 5th edition books. Uh, I was a sophomore in college at that point, and 5th edition was not fresh out on the scene, but it was still fairly new. Uh, I'd been following the D&D Next playtest up to that point, so I had a pretty decent understanding of the core conceit of fifth edition, advantage, disadvantage, bounded accuracy, all of that stuff. And it's like, well, I I can write for this. I've read all the playtest material. I could make an adventure. And I didn't actually end up publishing any of it until I used it, used an adventure I'd written in a resume piece for N-World Insider, which is uh, a (laughs) Patreon uh, D&D magazine. That's been going for three years now, almost exactly three years since it debuted, and I've I ended up being its editor uh, for all of those three years. I've very recently announced my decision to leave Insider just because I have other projects I want to take on and uh, I need to free up some time in my freelancing schedule. And I'm I'm sorry to see them go, but Insider has a very good new editor now, a guy named Mike Myler not to be confused with Mike Merles or Mike Myers. Um, <laughs> um, but n Insider really got me started in the RPG industry. Uh, editing fifth edition content gave me a very strong understanding of the nitty gritty rules bits. And I thought that was, uh, looking back, that is absolutely invaluable, that experience digging incredibly deep into the rules and the style guide of fifth edition. Because I couldn't tell you how many freelancers I saw as the editor who gave their submissions and I got a manuscript from them. And it just broke my heart to see all of these little little inconsistencies, things that may not look like much on paper, but will immediately signal to a player of... A uh, fifth edition that they are looking at an amateur work, something like instead of writing an ability check as a DC fifteen intelligence arcana check, they'll write an arcana check parentheses DC fifteen. I'm like, oh well, that that doesn't look like fifth edition; that looks like third edition. And to the the average layman, maybe that's not a big deal, but if you're if you're looking for a publisher to take you seriously and to really emulate that five e style. Uh, you have to learn all of those little tricks and uh, style bits. Um, (laughs)
1: Consistency is important. Like I'm with you. Like uh, it's the thing that I've learned over the past few years of working with um, Sean and a few others on the projects that we work on. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, if you're not, if you're not looking like the actual thing, then it doesn't feel right. And people aren't going to uh, buy into it or, or buy it even, or, you know, give you a bad review for not having something that looks like fifth edition. Cause that's the thing that you're writing
2: for. Yeah. That's
1: totally fair. Devils in the details, right? Yeah, absolutely.
0: And yeah. And you, you don't even need the style guide or any, you know, behind the scenes documents to learn that stuff. You just need to look at a published product mm-hmm. and watch their repetition of the same, you know, style, the same words every time. And then, and then just repeat that.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I got
2: a very good piece of advice, uh, of design advice from Jeremy Crawford at one point. Um, and he said, all of the designers of D&D here at Wizards, no matter how long they've worked on the game, no matter if they're new to the job like Kate Welch, or if they've been there since the start of 5th edition, since Mike Merles, um, all of them, when they're designing rules content for D&D, have the core books open on their desk. Uh, this is not, you know, this is not a closed book test. When you're writing for D and D, you need to be consistent with what has been published before. And if you're writing a monster ability that does something similar to a spell or to a player class ability, you need to make sure that your thing is consistent with that. You need to make sure your thing is consistent with every other little uh, piece of minutia in the game. Otherwise, it will feel wrong to whoever's reading it, or worse. If it if it could feel wrong and be mechanically inconsistent, you could word two things that appear to do the same thing on paper similarly, but uh, if you're not careful, they could play out radically different in gameplay.
1: Now, can we can we talk real quick about the evolution of a rule set? Because D D's been around for a while now, the fifth edition of the game, and with the most recent two uh, books that have come out, Bolo's Guide and and xanathar's guide there are some different stylings Mm -hmm. like traps do not look the same as they used Mm -hmm. to and i'll tell you man i ran into that because i used the old trap convention and it was not correct Mm. because traps are now written in a completely different way so it actually pays to keep up with what is new and what is
2: going on with yes absolutely um i i was going through xanathar's guide to everything just the other day when some of my players were looking for new classes uh, to play in a campaign I'm going to start in a couple of weeks. And I was surprised to see that there are some fairly different conventions in Xanathar's Guide than in the Player's Handbook. Uh, the The one that jumps out at me the most is that all of the Ranger subclasses in Xanathar's Guide have bonus spells. The ones in the Player's Handbook, the Beastmaster and the Hunter, they do not have a list of spells that are added to the Ranger spell list for them. And um that's a huge change that's a huge increase to power for the uh for the monster hunter and for the gloom stalker as compared to their player's handbook counterparts and i'm glad they did that the ranger sorely needed a little shove towards the more powerful end of the spectrum but i think it would be interesting to see if there is any sort of errata printed for the player's handbook that gives that same uh, concession to the original ranger subclasses.
1: Oh, I would, I would say, I, I would guess never. I, I, Cause yeah. I, I'm, I'm just going to say <laughs> that right now, like the, the, the things that were created in the past, they're still going to exist. But I mean, I don't think that they're ever going to errata <laughs> that stuff because uh, I think yeah. that's what they've said. Like they're going to treat Erada very differently.
2: Um. Yeah. I remember the days of fourth edition when uh, it seemed like errata was coming out every week.
1: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It was, uh, it was, it was pointless to buy the books. The books were all useless after a little while. And I don't think they, yeah. Yeah, I don't think they want that. I mean, I don't think they're, I mean, they, they better not have that. They keep selling out print runs of books,
2: right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. One product was uh, uh, ostensibly geared towards a, a very digital tool set with a patch schedule, like a, uh, like a video game. Mm-hmm. And fifth edition is not that it is very much a, a pen and paper product. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it, no matter how much uh, D and D beyond gives people uh, electronic tools, and as useful and as much desired as those electronic tools are, and as much as people are still begging for PDF releases of the core books, um, it's it's still a pen and paper product first and foremost, and that won't change.
1: Well, they're never going to get PDF releases of the books because all the books are digitally available
2: in other places now. Yeah. yeah. Fantasy Ground, Troll 20, D&D Beyond, there's tons of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not like we don't have access to the stuff digitally, which is perfectly legitimate. Like I'm, I'm actually quite happy with that. We were actually... Um, a while ago we were so far off far afield but that's okay we're gonna take this tangent um, <laughs> about about three or four months ago we were talking about how we don't have a good app like for for role-playing games or like we haven't had, maybe it was even longer ago i can't remember it was so long ago we we're like where are the apps for role-playing game books that we can really use like that would be nice to have and then sure enough like dnd beyond exists now and i'm like it's a pretty solid app as far as like a dnd role-playing game app goes yeah so i mean good luck have other role-playing games you know modeling that but you know that's that's a pretty solid <laughs> thing i mean it helped that they went to curse who you know curse is great at a lot of things
2: when it comes to yeah. that that kind of stuff and it's nice that they're in the, the the tabletop game space now yeah i'm impressed that uh curse decided to move to D as well i mean they've been with world of warcraft for years and years doing mm-hmm. digital tools for them but D anD D really needed those digital tools, and I'm happy to see that those years of expertise being brought to this industry finally. Um, no, I'm sure. I mean, they saw. I, I, I'm sorry. Sure they... I, I remember when um, what was it? Project Morningstar, or whatever. The, mm-hmm. All of the there were like two or three failed digital tools attempts for Fifth Edition, and uh, they were all with companies who basically had no credits on their resume. Sort of a shot in the dark when it came to licensing. But they really found the golden ticket on this one.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's good that they went with somebody who actually knew what they were doing. And I'm sure Curse saw the the opportunity, right? Like D&D was growing at a rapid pace, and they probably predicted in in some ways, like, oh, look at all the streaming that's going on. And this is kind of where we live, because, you know, um, I'm pretty sure this Curse is the same Curse that has the the League of Legends team and things like that. Like, they're in that space. So they understand how powerful streaming can be. And they're like, people are starting to glomp onto this when it comes to tabletop games. So it's probably a good deal for them. they am making a bunch of money off of it and also providing cool though. stuff.
2: Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I hope they're making a bunch of money off of it because their service is invaluable. And I'm not just saying that because I'm, I'm contracted with them. Uh, the fact that they're providing this service to D&D players is vital. People need this,
1: Sean. Since we went way far afield, do you have any? Uh, do you have a question for James?
0: Do you want me to bring this back around? Sure, go ahead. So, my my, my question, James, is: so after you became the uh, the editor for the N World Insider, uh, where did you go from there? What was the next project? Was there one project where you thought, "Wow, uh, this is big time now. I'm now a big time game designer." Yes.
2: Yes, uh I, I know I know what my watershed moment was when it came to role-playing game design. Um I'll 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 give you the the journey real quickly and then hit on that big point. Um after working at Insider for a couple of years, uh I was still down in Southern California and I through a series of events became the editorial intern at Geek and Sundry, the streaming and uh video producing company for nerd game stuff. And while I was there interning uh, geek and sundry for about a year i i met up with matthew mercer this was right at the time when critical role was becoming an enormous deal it was right around episode 50 when they got that kick-ass new uh live action intro and people were really starting to latch on to this movement of D and live streaming and Right around that time, Green Ronin Publishing, who had worked with Geek & Sundry before for Titan's Grave, Ashes of Volcana, uh, went to Geek & Sundry and said, We'd like to publish an RPG setting book for Critical Role. And Geek & Sundry said, That's great. And then Geek & Sundry turned to Matt and said, Hey, Matt, we're publishing an RPG setting book for Critical Role. And Matt said, You're doing what? (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm a busy man. I, I have a full-time job as a voice actor, and I'm doing critical role. Uh, I'll do my best, because Matthew Mercer is the nicest human being on the face of the earth. Of course, he said, yes, of course, I'll do this. Um, mm-hmm. And he did a, He he did some work on his own for probably a couple of weeks, and then he realized, if I do this, I'm going to die. I'm going to shrivel up on the floor and uh, perish. And mm-hmm. he, he said, well, we need to find some people who are in the geek and sundry family who are intimately familiar with this content and who know their stuff when it comes to D and D and he came to me and that was, it was, it was a shocking moment to just have uh, Matt come up to my little desk in the geek and sundry bullpen and say, here, come out into the hallway with me. Uh, Let's talk about a book. And from that point on for the next six months or so, he and I, uh talked all the time we had a google doc open we had tons of google docs open for every single chapter of this critical role book and we just shot ideas back and forth as we detailed uh so this is a campaign setting book it talks about the location of the first critical role campaign not the new one that's going on right now but it detailed the lands of tal dore which is, uh, by Matt's own admission, a pretty bog-standard fantasy setting. He made this setting to introduce all of his friends who'd never played an RPG before to Dungeons & Dragons. And I think it's an awesome way to introduce people to D&D because it is rich and detailed through the show, through Critical Role, and through all the information that Matt and I, in making that book, um, drew from and extrapolated from and basically poured into the book. But... It's not so old and lore dense and uh, lived in like uh, the Forgotten Realms, for instance, which are a great setting, but they're a bit it's a bit intimidating for new players to go in and see, oh, well, there's 18 box sets and a thousand books from 40 years ago. And oh, my God, where do I start? Will anything I do contradict the lore? Will I play the game right? You don't have to worry about playing the game right. And I mean that's <laughs> that's true for any campaign setting, but it's nice to not even have to worry about it in the first place when it comes to a a mm. fresher and younger campaign setting like Um And yeah, certainly it's been criticized for uh, being pretty vanilla fantasy, but I think that's a selling point, not not a not a failing. Um, and that was the moment when I really got into D anD. D. Uh, as as a designer. Uh, up until that point, I'd worked for Insider. I'd done some freelance stuff for Kobold Press. I had written, you know, articles on Geek & Sundry, which was great training for what I'm about to do at D&D Beyond. Uh, basically the same, but on a much deeper and more in-depth and larger scale. Um, but since then, uh, since uh, meeting with Matt, since getting a high-profile gig... Uh, like the Critical Role book, um, I have done work with Wizards of the Coast on a project I can't talk about. Um, I've done stuff with the D and D Adventures League. I wrote an adventure for you, Sean, for a concreated content for Holberg. That'll come out mm-hmm. later, <laughs> sometime,
0: sometime soon. <laughs> um,
2: yeah. <laughs> um, and now to to cap it all off, um, when I first met Adam Bradford, the guy in charge of D and D Beyond at PAX this year. Pax West. Um, he said, I you know, James, I read the Taldore campaign setting and I really love it. Let's talk about D D Beyond. So there, you know, there's a direct uh genealogy, a direct lineage from that critical role book to what I'm doing right now. And that's a watershed moment for me.
1: Very nice. Thanks for the story. That was that was really <laughs> cool to hear. I mean, especially for those who, of those people out there who didn't realize that James had worked at uh, Geek and Sundry because I didn't.
2: That's, Geek and uh, Sundry was a cool gig. <laughs> uh,
1: what, what did you do there aside from what were you doing at Geek and Sundry? Um, exactly,
2: my official title was editorial intern. Um, so, what that meant was I was uh, dreaming up articles that would go on the Geek and Sundry web blog because they have a they have a blog that was I think mm. it's of lesser importance now because their video content and their streaming has uh, has exploded so well but they had a weblog that was very serious to them they published like 11 articles a week and they needed um, in addition to their freelance writers they wanted an intern to work directly with their team with their editor-in-chief and pitch articles and create content because they, they just needed content like any good web blog does. And so I wrote a lot about D&D and Pathfinder and uh, Green Ronin's Fantasy Age and Dragon Age and anything that was role-playing game adjacent. And every now and then I would go backstage for an episode of Critical Role late at night and I would write down what happened. I would write a little analysis and keep people in the Geek and Sundry community informed of what was Happening in the RPG world, um, and you'll see you'll see the the chops I gain doing that directly in what I'll be doing on D anD D Beyond.
1: So moving on from there, mm-hmm. thank you for that. Um, what's your favorite design work that you've done, and what made it special to you?
2: Mm, that's a very good question. Mm. I think it would be an easy easy answer to say that some of my favorite design work was working with Matt Mercer, working on the critical role book. But um, as far as game design went, I had a pretty minor role. I did a lot of uh, narrative design and world building there, but uh, Matt handled most of the mechanics of that world. I mean, he created all the magic items and player classes. I made a couple of monsters, but I was, I was pretty hands off when it came to designing actual rules content for that book. And I was fine with that. Um, I think my, greatest uh mechanical uh accomplishment in recent times has been either Cobalt press's creature codex uh, which i can't really talk about too much or uh xanathar's lost notes to everything else which was a guild adept project that i was brought in about halfway through to be the editor on and mm-hmm. that was uh It was not the easiest project I've ever worked on just because I came in so late and I had to negotiate uh, what had come before and what was going to come after. But essentially, that book had about half the content over again as Xanathar's Guide to Everything with new player subclasses, with new uh, races and backgrounds, I think, and all sorts of stuff that players can use in their campaign if they want more than what Xanathar's guide itself promised. And I also had the chance to write a cool little adventure uh, called All Eyes on Chult, where the Xanathar Guild and the Zenturim are fighting over Port Nianzaru. Mm -hmm. And I think someone's going to be live streaming that adventure uh, in a couple of days. And that's bizarre to me. That's weirdly exciting to see that something I wrote is being live streamed on the internet. Um, But Um. that was, that was my favorite uh, mechanical challenge because it, it had a scope that I was unfamiliar with. It was, this was easily the biggest, um, most mechanically involved project that I've ever worked on, working with James Intercasso and Rudy Rutenberg um, and handling basically half of a full-size D&D book uh, on a very fast timeline, on a very small budget, on a and to publish on uh, the DM Guild. And it was certainly the most, challenging thing i'd ever done and it it showed in the original release i think the original release of that project was a bit uh was a bit hairy but uh we were able to get some feedback from the community and uh fix any (laughs) any initial issues that might have uh cropped up in that first draft and what exists on the dms guild now uh is a beautiful project frankly
0: yeah, that project would even be tougher in the sense that normally when you're a developer or an editor, you might be dealing with one or two uh, designers. So you get a feel for how they work. You You can see their their strengths and their flaws over time, and you know where to go to fix something. But you are probably dealing with, with the Gilded Apps. You're probably dealing with 10 or more contributors, all contributing their own content in many different ways. I can see how that would would really tax you yeah
2: you're right on the money with that sean um i basically only interfaced directly with james intercasso uh rich Lescuflaire, and rudy rutenberg on that project um i know that chris Lindsay over at wizards sort of had a had an eye in the sky on the project too because he's he's in charge of the guild adepts but i i only really talked with those three people and I had to, I had to rely a lot on their communication with all the other guild adepts and that was a big challenge. I I, I understood and overcame to the best mm-hmm. of my ability a lot of like project management challenges uh, for the very first time while working on Xanathar's Lost Notes. Um, and so more than anything, I, I consider that a, a valuable learning experience for me that also happened to produce some pretty cool D&D content.
0: Yeah. If you could do that, you can project manage D&D beyond content with your eyes closed <laughs> now. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sean, do you have any other questions for James?
0: Yeah. When you are designing content, what's the easiest uh, type of content to, to create for you and which is the hardest? mm
2: That's a good question. I love designing adventures for tier one and tier two characters. Mm -hmm. Um, They flow so easily. uh, And I just have the most experience in that tier of play, too, right? Um, In in those tiers of play, you often can express all sorts of interesting story ideas without having to really worry about player character abilities and powerful spells. Mm -hmm. messing up core conceits of your adventure. And that's, maybe that's kind of a selfish thing to say because you want the players to have fun with their cool toys. But uh, oftentimes, as I saw in an adventure I wrote recently, uh, if you aren't prepared for every eventuality, uh, the adventure becomes uh, easy and easy because of a clever solution is one thing because of a a wild cock and bull player character plan that they pulled off, uh, by the skin of their teeth that's fun that's exciting when you can just cast forbiddance and uh nullify an entire floor of a dungeon that's that's harder that's harder to deal with (laughs) um and uh, of course when you're dealing in higher level adventure scenarios That's just when playtesting becomes absolutely vital. But if it's just me writing for fun, writing uh, stuff that will either not get published or that will get revised a lot or that I'm just writing for my home game, that's when I love writing adventures for characters that are like third level or anywhere between third and maybe like seventh level. That's just a fun place to write in. That is the
1: sweet spot, usually, in Mm -hmm. D&D.
2: Oh, um uh i'm I'm interrupting but kobold press published a book that i contributed a lot to almost a year ago now called eldritch lairs i love writing mini dungeons that's exactly what it is eldritch lairs is a collection of mini dungeons that i wrote five of that go from fourth level to seventh level i think ninth level fourth to ninth i think um and That is absolutely where I think I excel, but also where I think I have the most fun writing short uh, adventure scenarios that can be completed in about a session, maybe two if they're going slow of play, Um, because you get to tell a really tight, self-contained story that if a DM wants to, they can expand into their own larger project. Mm -hmm. Sounds good.
1: So so which one's the hardest thing?
2: um writing player options is very very hard and i was just i i just had to write a ton of subclasses for a third party uh publishing project called the fairy ring and i wrote something like 20 new subclasses for that and i'm absolutely terrified to see what the playtesters think of them because i have no idea <laughs> if they're going to be any good or not <laughs> Um, and because there's only so much you can do on your own you can theory craft as much as you want you can run the numbers but until a player gets their hands on it and starts tweaking it in ways you couldn't possibly imagine uh you have no idea what's going to happen
0: that is funny because i will also be working on player content for the fairy ring (laughs) shortly uh so I, i i i feel your pain and raise you too (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad to know someone understands. I have one last question. Absolutely. What um, what
1: games that were not D- that are not D and D have influenced your design and that you have
2: brought to D and D? Do you want to hear about video games or board games first?
1: Uh, I'll take any of them.
2: Okay. I love games by Nintendo. Um, I think. Uh, across all genres, all platforms, all mediums of games, uh, games like The Legend of Zelda, especially that latest one, Breath of the Wild, mm-hmm. and tactical role-playing games like Fire Emblem, have mm-hmm. been absolutely crucial to my to the way that I design D and D. When I was on uh, Dragon Talk for the first time, I mentioned this to Greg Tito. Um, something about the new Legend of Zelda game in the way that you can go to the top of a hill and look out over essentially the entire game world. You can see a castle, you can see villages, you can see mountains miles in the distance and know to yourself, if I want to go to that mountain, I can, I can go there and I will have all sorts of adventures along the way, but the world is persistent and expansive and able to accommodate any adventure that I want to have. And Going back to us talking about exploration earlier in this, that is a sense of exploration that I have never been able to capture in D&D That I desperately want to stuff in a bottle and use in my home game. Uh, Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. I I I could I could spend hours talking about how I want to uh, capture that sense of freeform, completely open natural beautiful exploration but i don't know how to do it yet in a pen and paper role-playing game
1: yeah it's a that's a thing right like that's that's (laughs) tricky i know exactly what you're talking about i mean i mean i played a ton of world of warcraft and like you could just kind of go almost almost i mean there were some walls right but most of the time you could just kind of go anywhere Mm mm-hmm and everything was happening along the way, but yeah, Zelda, like Nintendo, makes amazingly good games. Like exactly for the reasons that you're talking about, they don't they don't just make games; they often make experiences.
2: Yeah, um, and speaking of other Nintendo games, I mentioned Fire Emblem earlier, and that's maybe one of their lesser-known series, but it is a it is a turn-based, team-based, tactical strategy RPG. So you'll have a bunch of Characters who have classes like cavalier or paladin or lord or mage all fairly recognizable fantasy tropes and with their strength and weaknesses you know cavaliers have horses and they can use swords and lances mages don't have horses and they use magic um, and not These characters are not just their classes, but they have personalities and the game has a system of permanent death. So if one of your characters is dropped to zero hit points, uh, they are gone from the game permanently in a way that reminds me of D&D quite a bit. And there are certain games where you can find a resurrection fountain, but those are few and far between. And the way that that game marries... Uh, Character depth and sort of a a role-playing element with deep strategic movement, uh, grid-based movement, um, an almost rock-paper-scissors-like combat system in which swords beat axes, axes beat lances, and lances beat swords again, Um, inspires me to think in a tactically deep way that I like being able to think of in d &D. Uh, and I surprise people sometimes because I really like story games and i really like deep role-playing but i'm also absolutely in love with deep tactical combat also um and i i I know in my heart of hearts that there is a way to make that happen you just have to find a group of people who like both of those things and are able to do them at the same time yes absolutely
1: i mean like i I'm a I'm a pretty big Fire Emblem, Emblem fan myself. Like, I nice. played two of them. But, like, I played a ton of Final Fantasy Tactics yeah. and Ogre Tactics and all those all those tactical role-playing games. Like, they're, they're so much fun. But, yeah, I lo- you're absolutely right about Fire Emblem. It's, it's one of the reasons why I loved playing 4th Edition so much. Like, my 4th Edition game didn't look like everybody else's 4th Edition game because I was marrying all that deep storytelling into the middle of the fights because that's how those games did it. Mm-hmm. Like, they would tell the stories during combats, and that was... And then they would have the stuff in between, too. Uh, but but we, as tabletop game players, we could do more with that. We could do more with the design and more with, you know, taking the idea of what a skill challenge was and making it actually work in, in, in practicality instead of what it was in theory. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there was... um, th- there's, there's a space for that. There's even a design space for that still that we haven't completely and fully explored. I agree. So... Yeah. Well, uh, uh, thank you for that answer. That was a, that was quite wonderful. Is, uh, is there anything else that you wanted to say before we get out of here?
2: Oh, that's a that's a good question. I I just want to say how glad I am that you're here talking about D and D. I love being able to just gush about what I love to uh, other people and have them open up right back to me. It's a wonderful experience, and I'm happy that you're doing it here for the D and D community.
0: Well, thank you very much. We we're happy to do it, Rachel. Absolutely, absolutely. Are there is there any uh, conventions or anything you're going to be going to in the near future?
2: Oh yes, I just bought my Gen Con ticket. In fact, um, but even sooner than that, uh, this coming weekend, I will be at Emerald City Comic Con on Thursday and Friday, and I'll even be at a Critical Role Critter Meetup Saturday night too. Um, so if you want to, if you're in Seattle or if you're coming to Seattle for ECCC, um, you can catch me on. Thursday, all day, Friday, for the Mm -hmm. first half of the day, I'm seeing Hamilton Friday night, which is blowing my mind. And uh, so, oh my God, I can't wait. The soundtrack is playing in my head (laughs) Um, (laughs) 24-7. Or on Saturday night uh, at the Critter Meetup near the convention center.
1: Very nice. All right, well, with that, everyone out there and listening, listener line, thank you so much for listening. Uh, let's do a few Patreon shout-outs. So uh, Jesse Edmond, that's Doc Palindrome, Miko Froelich, Andrew Dacey, Tabletop Gaming Deals, Wayne Peterson, Effie Mattson, John Carney, Victor Wyatt, Garrett Cologne, Eric Simon, Dennis Malloy, Camden Wright, Richard Wayne, Sean P. Kelly, Sean the Other Kelly, Chris Steele, Donnie Harville, Ryan uh, Boltier, P.K. Sullivan, Brett the Rainmaker. Thank you so much for being our patrons. And speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Dow and D, you can click on a link to our Patreon page on the website. And for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout out.
0: Or for four fifty a month, you not only get a shout out, but you also get our pre-production show notes. And we try to give patrons little extras every now and then. If you can't help us monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple podcast review. Those reviews help us even if you don't listen to the Apple podcast, since many other podcatchers use Apple podcast as their way to rate shows, which would make us more visible. So, um, James,
2: where can we find you on the internet? You can find me, uh, best on Twitter at James J Hake H-A-E-C-K. And, uh, really that's the best place that you can find me.
0: Excellent. You can find me at Sean Merwin or on the Down with DG, G plus community. How about you, Chris?
1: Uh, you can hit me up at Down d d on Twitter or at Mr. Director Mark Yeah. Or at Misdirected Mark on Twitter, or you can go to the website, the new and improved website, where you can catch other great shows such as this one, Pandas Talking Games. Phil and send to answer your questions about RPGs from the perspective of one-shots and campaigns with some panda silliness.
0: Down with D and D is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs.
1: Yeah. So, uh, James, what are we going to do now? If you remember correctly.
0: Oh, you're going to ask me a
2: question, and the answer is go kill some monsters. Whoop whoop.
0: Get down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D and D? Down with D Yeah, you know me. Be down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D and D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D?